Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jonathan Curiel and I'll be your moderator for today's program called Trump in the Middle East 2019. It's the third program in an annual Commonwealth Club series on the subject. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Um, let me introduce our, our distinguished panelists. The first three spoke on the previous panels about uh, Trump and the Middle East. Um, Dr. Banafsheh Kanush is the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Friends or Foes. She's a writer, foreign affairs scholar, and academician who recently um, uh, visited Princeton University and was a visiting fellow at the King Faisal Center. On the video screen is um, Dr. Mahir Khalidji, uh, a native Jordanian who's traveled extensively in the Middle East, and he's joining us from France via Zoom. Um, we also have, um, to my immediate right, Eddie Simonian, who was raised in Lebanon, wrote his master's thesis on the country for his MA in international relations from the University of San Francisco. And then we're also joined this year by um, Dr. Aaron Kaplan, the Rhoda and Richard Goldman Chair in Israel Studies at San Francisco State University. Before we get to their analysis, let's remind our audiences um, that the Middle East has been one of Donald Trump's main interests since assuming the U.S. presidency. Trump's first foreign visit as president was to Saudi Arabia, from where he went to Israel, from where he went to the West Bank. And the Middle East has changed fundamentally ever since, uh, either because of Trump's explicit directives or his tacit condoning of policies, whether it's the elimination of important monies to the Palestinian Authority, his view that Israel should keep the Golan Heights that he had wrested from Syria in 1967, pressure on Lebanon to crack down on Hezbollah, and his abrogation of President Obama's Iran initiative. There is lots and lots and lots to talk about. We could probably take four hours, but we're limited to about an hour. Um, so let's hear from our four speakers. And let's start with um, Dr. Um, Banushe Kanush. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I will um, discuss, if I may, a little bit uh, the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia at its current stage, but with an eye in hindsight, um, crossing the span of history, which tells us that this relationship is best preserved when there's a relative balance of power between the two. Even before Saudi Arabia became an independent, uh, full-blown state in 1932, um, the situation in the region was such that the Arabian Peninsula felt that it always had to look to Persia as a way of balancing threats in the region. And there were a lot of Persian pilgrims that always went to the Arabian Peninsula, to Mecca and Medina. So there was an organic bond and understanding between the two places, regardless of the Shia-Sunni dichotomy. And uh, over time, as the United States has become more involved in the region, various administrations have looked at this issue of the balance of uh, power between Iran and Saudi Arabia with varying degrees of speculation. Uh, one of the presidents that really un understood the importance of this concept was President Lyndon Johnson. Um, and uh, then pre under the Nixon administration, as some of you might be aware, a twin pillar policy emerged, whereby the United States decided to provide uh, a military aid to almost equ in equivalent degrees to both Saudi Arabia and Iran, and have them take charge of the security of the region. And the two really rolled up their sleeves and did quite well. They were instrumental in creating the Camp David Accord, although actually 
you know, in the news, it seemed like the United States had taken the leadership and most of the groundwork had humbly been laid by the Iranian and the Saudi leadership. And I can go on and speak of many other examples. Now, obviously, the Iranian revolution kind of altered the, our perceptions of what a balance of power in the region really entails. And as the United States, we started in initially in the early 1980s after the revolution in Iran to look at Iraq and Saddam Hussein as an alternative to balancing uh, against Iran and taking on the role that Iran had in the region. Obviously, Saddam Hussein proves to be a failure and uh, a letdown to not just the United States, but the entire region. And what that did was leave the balance of power in a state of limbo in the region. A lot of us nowadays think that Saudi Arabia kind of likes that because, well, there's no Saddam and there's no, you know, Shah under Iran. And so let me take on the role of the regional hegemon. I was just in Saudi Arabia and I've been there uh, several times in recent years and they are very reluctant engagers in the region because Saudi Arabia is a new state and it doesn't feel the confidence that it must have in order to really engage full on in the region. By us not engaging with Iran, and us here, I mean the United States, we are overburdening Saudi Arabia. Now, meanwhile, the Iranians are sitting in Tehran with the revolution and looking at this situation and wondering why is it that the United States is over investing in Saudi Arabia and ignoring us? And could it be that under the Trump administration, what they're really aiming at is to give Saudi Arabia predominant regional power? Now, whether Saudi Arabia wants to be the hegemon or not is another issue. Iran has always been charged for having hegemonic ambitions by its Arab neighbors, so I'll refrain from even using that word. But Saudi Arabia, back in November 2017, the United States started engaging with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arab states um, to develop a concept of the Arab NATO, the equivalent of a collective military power that, among other things, would be able to contain the threat of Iran's rising military power and influence in the region. Um, just um, this month, a U.S. delegation was in Riyadh again discussing how to mature this concept of an Arab NATO and also, there's a counterterrorism terrorism center established in Riyadh that works closely with the United States and the uh, counterterrorist uh, sort of authorities on both in both countries sat down and again said, "We're here to think about Iran." So Iran is like, "Okay, what's going on?" And will they will they succeed in containing Iran? The thing with the Trump administration is that um, I don't think it really seeks war immediately with Iran. I mean, President Trump came to power kind of saying, I didn't like what went on under the Bush administration with all the regional wars, and hands off, we don't want to go there. So I really am of the opinion that they really want to bring maximum pressure on Iran to seal the budge and negotiate like North Korea did or something along those lines or not. And war being an option or not in the background, I don't want to go there yet. Um, but um, I think 
the policy of bringing maximum pressure on Iran is what is going on with the Trump administration. And they recently designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is really a major branch of its uh, armed forces in Iran and uh, in the region, as a terrorist, as a foreign terrorist organization. And we know that the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in May 2018. And since then, sanctions, tight international sanctions, have been imposed again on Iran. The Iranian economy, according to the IMF, has this year alone shrunk by some 4%, while Saudi Arabia's economy and that of the other Gulf Arab states is doing quite well. They are under the strain of the military competition with Iran, and you know that's a totally different story. But let's go back to the concept of whether President Trump will succeed in his mission on Iran and sort of turning Saudi Arabia into the big man and big arm here in helping the Trump administration go after what it wants regarding Iran. There are a couple of challenges here in this policy. One and foremost is that there's a lack of regional consensus on Iran. Countries like Turkey, Russia, we know, and uh, also Iraq. Um, and actually, many of the U.S. allies in the region are hesitant to really have a conflictual relationship with Iran because they are very mindful of Iran's military power. Even Iran's economy, though it has shrunk, it is a very... Um, resilient economy. I don't know of any country in the world that can be under one form or another kind of sanction since the revolution, that's 40 years, and still be as rich as Iran is. I mean, look at Venezuela, just a few years and the country is out of control. And it's not just an issue of how much oil you have, because Venezuela has a lot of it now. Um, it's just the Iranians are pretty self-reliant and self-dependent. So sitting back and hoping that the economy will crumble or the country will crumble could be a little bit of a false hope here. And maybe it might happen. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but we're talking about concrete policy on Iran. So that's one issue. The other issue is that Saudi Arabia itself is hesitant to take on a full leadership role, at, um, although it has to kind of, in, in militarization of the region. We know that the Trump administration has just recently also given a green light to Saudi Arabia acquiring nuclear technology. Iran is sitting there and looking at itself being flanked by Pakistan, who already has nuclear weapons technology, and Saudi Arabia, that is saying it is not pursuing a nuclear weapons program, but it does work closely with Pakistan on the issue. Um, so uh, Saudi Arabia itself doesn't want, and it has advocated a nuclear-free zone, and it knows that by flanking Iran with the threat of wep uh, nuclear weaponization, it's only going to create more Iranian aggressive behavior. And it's going to put the other reluctant countries in the region that don't want to demonize Iran as much in a difficult position. So this lack of consensus, this kind of hesitancy in assuming leadership by Saudi Arabia in the region in confronting Iran, mindful that the Saudi military hasn't done tremendously well and has faced an uphill battle in even small countries like Yemen, who hardly have Iran's military capabilities, puts a lot of ifs on, on the Trump administration's policies vis-a-vis um, -vis Iran. I, I think that but, um, I've said enough. Uh, I'll pause here and let my colleagues speak, and then I'll uh, look forward to receiving your comments. Thank you very much. Th th thank you, um, uh, Bonham Shea. Let let's uh, turn to uh, Mahar um, and see what he has to say from, from France. Uh, and uh, Mahar, I'm sure you're going to talk about um, Jordan and, and your um, you know, views throughout the, uh, about the Middle East in general. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and thank you, Celia, and thank you guys for uh, sorting the uh, this link here on uh, 
on Zoom. Uh, unfortunately, I have to disagree a lot with what uh, Dr. Ganoush has said, but that's not what I was going to mention here because uh, the last time we discussed this uh, subject was back in May 2018, if I may recall. And uh, I concluded my remarks at the time uh, with the uh, statement that uh, the brazen and vulgar have become the proper adjectives to describe American foreign policy in the Middle East. I also said at the time when I concluded that, that uh, Israel and the United States are currently, at that time, both led by men who are hard to trust. Well, uh, sadly, nothing has changed. Uh, and... Uh, Mr. Netanyahu has been re-elected, and uh, Mr. Trump, I'm sure, is very happy with the re-election of, uh, of Bibi there. Now they can continue with their offensive against Iran. And I'm going to quote a statement from a friend of mine who is a diplomat here in Europe. And he said that uh, Bolton and Pompeo, quote, wake up every morning thinking how they can destroy the Mullah's regime in Iran. I'm not a fan personally of the Mullah's regime, but uh, apparently that is the, uh, the uh, idea that people here have what uh, these two hawks there uh, wake up every morning thinking about. And he also believes, and the gentleman is a he as well, he also believes that they're only helping the Mullah's case by trying to push them in a corner. Uh, he believes that they will look for a pretext to attack Iran, which is really a very dangerous game at this time. Let's not forget that in May, this coming May next month, the second phase of the US sanctions will set in. And you only need uh, a possible attack on a sanctions busting Iranian oil tanker to trigger something which everyone will regret. For Iran, this will be casus belli. And immediately, I would imagine, the Saudis and the Emiratis will be sucked in. So I am, fortunately, I believe that we are heading in the direction of another war at the moment. One of the other things that we discussed last time was how the policies of the uh, Trump administration last May was affecting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And... There was hope that the two-state solution will survive. But uh, sadly, I believe the two-state solution is dead and buried. Not even buried, it's cremated. So there's no way it can recover now. Uh, there, there are many reasons for this, but uh, let me just uh, quote what Donald Tusk, which is the, who's the president of the European Council, said last week while he was referring to Brexit, which has nothing to do with this Middle East. But he said something very poignant. He said, that in any negotiation, one, no one must feel humiliated. Sadly, this is not the case in any Middle East negotiation at the moment. With uh, Mr. Netanyahu shamelessly quoting the openly racist anti-Arab parties. They're not just anti-Arab parties, they're anti-left parties in Israel as well. The humiliation of the minority is certain, and it will likely to continue for the next four years. Uh, one of my friends who was sitting in the audience there, I wasn't going to mention this, he told me after the last uh, panel that, you know, maybe Trump and uh, Netanyahu, they, they're introducing these 
disruptive policies to move the Middle East process. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a scientist, and my experience with disruptive, disruptive technologies is that, you know, you have to bring a paradigm shift, a novel approach, a good thing for everyone. Sadly, this paradigm shift which is happening, was well, actually not paradigm shift, it's tectonic shift in the Middle East politics, has become the norm for bad things over there. I believe that we are heading for another conflict over there. I believe Israel is safe as it stands at the moment from its neighbors. I think the main danger to Israel for, you know, the exist, for an exist, existential threat is the ethno-nationalism, which is on the rise, was born, and now is actually has come off age in Israel. And I think that is a real danger to uh, Israel and Israeli society. Uh, I was going to talk about Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. You know, Jerusalem will always remain a stumbling block. Whatever uh, President Trump does by recognizing uh, uh, Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel, etc., whatever happens, it will remain as a stumbling block. Leads me to another subject, which will uh, eventually relate to what Dr. Ganoush said, uh, Syria. If we look at Syria now in terms of what, what's happened with the current administration, the, the way I see Syria now is that it's being run by uh, Russia and Iran, nobody else. And these two guys, they sometimes fight with each other, but not openly. So there is a conflict in there which is, which is happening, but they control what's happening, what's occurring on the ground. The serious thing about Syria, which nobody's talking about at the moment, is there is a battle which is looming, the battle for Idlib in the northwest of, of, of Syria. There are about 30,000 Al-Qaeda fighters there, whether you call them a Nusra Front or Islamists, there are about 30,000 of them. They're concentrated over there, and there will be a battle that's how it's gonna happen soon. But who's gonna fight who? Uh, the Turks will fight the Syrian uh, regime. The Syrian regime will fight the Turks if they advance into that region. And then you have the question of the Kurds. What will happen to the Kurds? I mean, and this is a really serious issue because the Kurds would rather go back to the arms of the regime ra rather than fall under the control by Turkey. And I personally believe that, and we've seen already the, uh, the beginnings of it, I think the Kurds in Syria will eventually be abandoned by the US after they have uh, finished the job with ISIS and Daesh. And then what will happen? I think that's a huge mess still there. There are external players still playing in Syria. Let's not forget that. The same players who some of them are still playing in the worst disaster that we have in human history this century. It's Yemen. Yemen is a, is a, is a disaster, and uh, I'm sorry for Dr. Ganoush when she says the Saudis have no ambitions. The, uh, Trump and the UK will continue, and the UK I mentioned here, will continue on giving cover to the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates. Both of them, both of these countries are pursuing different aims in Yemen. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is fighting a proxy war with Iran in there, and they are determined to keep the Yemen as uh, one entity. But people also tend to forget that the Emirates, the UAE, are playing a big, big part in this, in this, uh, in this conflict. And they're eager on the uh, splitting of Yemen, north-south. 
I don't know how many people sitting in the crowd there. I can't see the crowds, uh, the people who are sitting there, but uh, United Arab Emirates have occupied an island off the coast of Yemen at the, uh, at the entrance to the Gulf of Aden. It's called Socotra. I don't know how many people know about Socotra. Socotra is a UNESCO protected island that contains a richness of plants and wildlife unique to the island. It's referred to as the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. United Arab Emirates have sent uh, its army, its, uh, its, uh, its aircraft, and they've taken over the, the whole island. Uh, they're even taking the population on holiday and for treatment to the United Arab Emirates. So it's being treated as part of the, of, of, uh, the United Arab Emirates. The, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis are emboldened by the uh, unwavering support that Trump has given them. And let's not forget, uh, people have very short memories that, you know, we're, uh, it's not even a year, I think, I'm not sure if it's a year now, since Khashoggi was murdered by agents of the, uh, of the Saudi regime. Uh, MBS and MBZ, as we know them, they're still uh, pulling so many strings in the Middle East, and they're trying to change the policies of certain countries, putting pressure on uh, many countries, and even Jordan, who has been a tremendous ally of the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, have recently said we have reached the limit of the pressure being put on us by our neighbors. So they are trying to interfere, they are trying to change policies, and they're being emboldened by the unwavering support that the uh, Trump uh, administration has uh, given them. I'm sadly, I mean, last time I may have been a bit more optimistic, but I'm extremely pessimistic at the moment as to the chances of peace happening uh, in any of the regions that I have mentioned in the Middle East at the moment, whether it is Yemen, whether it is uh, the, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, uh, conflict, or Syria. These are, and now we also have Libya. Uh, Libya is, is, is another uh, boiling pot in the uh, Middle East and North Africa, and the guy who's leading the assault on the internationally recognized government is being supported by Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. So they are being emboldened to do these things. And I'm sadly, I have to say that I cannot see uh, a positive uh, outcome of any of the problems that are emanating from uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for your patience. Uh, th th thank you, Mara. I, I, I want to uh, remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program. It's a third annual panel um, about Trump and the Middle East. Um, Let's go to uh, Dr. Aaron Kaplan um, and hear what he has to say um, about Israel and, and okay. elsewhere. Thank you very much. So I will speak about Trump and Israel-Palestine. And there are two pivotal dates, I think, to understand the relationship between Trump and both Israel and Palestine. So one is the aforementioned declaration of the relocation of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in December of uh, 2017, and this was a, a watershed point in the fact that it officially ended all communications between the Americans and the Palestinians uh, on both sides, and I think both sides are content with not speaking uh, to one another. So there is no ongoing dialogue between the Trump administration and the Palestinians at this point. The other date that I'd like to mention is actually in 2016, in the lead-up to the elections, the APAC conference 
in Washington, D.C., where Trump is then candidate Trump gave uh, a speech. And it is interesting to note that in the lead up to that time, when Trump spoke about Israel and the Palestinians, it was part of the overall America First program that he declared. And he said, while he spoke very favorably of Bibi Netanyahu and others, he said, Israel, like any other country, like NATO, they'll have to pay the price for our cooperation and our support. And this, of course, irked many Republican supporters, of course, Sheldon Adelson, chief among them. And even the day before the APAC conference, at a news conference, he repeated the same talking points, Trump. At this point, I think some of the old Republican establishment, realizing that he was going to be uh, the nominee, and others took him to the back room. And when he gave the speech at the APAC conference, it was the mainstream Republican support for Israel, singing the praises of Netanyahu, and declaring that the embassy will move when he's elected uh, president. Uh, and since then, there is a very special relationship that Trump has cultivated with Netanyahu and the Israeli government. And if we just look at the most recent campaign in Israel, there's no need for a Mueller investigation in Israel. This, the two campaigns were fully uh, coordinated. Uh, just as Netanyahu was leaving for his own appearance at the APEC conference in Washington, D.C., the day before, Trump declared that the U.S. recognizes Israel, Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and they plan to have a very nice ceremony Hamas kind of ruined things because they launched a rocket on the greater Tel Aviv area, so Bibi had to return to Israel a little early. But then Putin stepped in the following week, and they had their own coordinated event. So the two leaders uh, played a role in the lead-up to the Israeli elections indeed. Now, we have to say that President Trump has been promising us the deal of the century. And I think he used other adjectives to describe what he was planning for the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, so I don't know, maybe something out of the hat will be pulled and everything will be realigned, though then again I think we can all try to figure out what new can be added to any kind of formulas to resolve the conflict between Israelis and uh, Palestinians. But I think that Netanyahu absolutely feels that he is carte blanche to carry out his policies, but I would like to... Uh, unlike the previous speaker, say that, in fact, in the elections that were just held in Israel, it was the centrist left opposition that portrayed Netanyahu as weak in his dealings with Hamas and the Palestinians. That is too um, accommodating of Hamas and not proactive or even violent enough in his response to the rockets being launched from Gaza. And in fact, if you look pay attention closely to the way that Netanyahu has been handling with the Palestinian question, is he, he absolutely does not believe that there's any resolution. I don't think he's pursuing any peace plan. But he believes in maintaining the conflict and controlling the conflict. So if it means giving the Palestinian Authority some leverage, some freedom to operate in return for security cooperation, he's fine with that. If it means moving Qatari money into the Gaza Strip to the hands of Hamas, if this reduces the levels of violence and tension, he's okay with that. As long as he can control and maintain the conflict and not let it kind of simmer out of control, I think that he is okay with that. And in this regard, while maybe Bolton and Pompeo would like to see the mullahs out of Iran, I think that for Netanyahu, the fact that the mullahs are in Iran are almost like mana, it's a gift. He needs the mullahs in Iran because this provides the ultimate external 
threat, which, where he can say this is the existential threat, all other conflicts in the region are secondary. It allows us to create new allegiances. Israel could align itself with Saudi Arabia, with other Gulf states, with the Sunni axis against Iran. And the point that he makes repeatedly, especially during his annual visits to the UN, is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a minor issue in the region. There are far greater threats that put the entire world under threat. And therefore, trust me to manage the conflict. It will not get out of hand. I will not use overwhelming force in my responses. And things can go on almost indefinitely from his point of view. And my sense is that, again, Trump will go along and seems to accommodate the uh, agenda or wishes of Netanyahu when it comes to the conflict. But, again, I'll repeat... We're waiting for the big surprise. Maybe we'll all be overwhelmed and and, and, and rethink our our views of the conflict and the possibility to resolve it. But I have my doubts. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Okay, we have uh, doubts. Before that, we had pessimism. And before that, we had uh, more an analysis. But now let's go to to, um, Eddie Simonian and hear what he has to say about um, his native uh, Lebanon and, and maybe elsewhere in the region. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to continue from what he was saying to talk about the Trump administration and Hezbollah and even Bashar al-Assad. I feel that they need each other. So what happened uh, recently, Pompeo was in Lebanon and Lebanon, again, if people don't know, it's it's like a mosaic. It's a divided country, Muslims, Christians, within Islam, Sunnis, Shias, Within Christians, half the Christians are allied with the Sunnis, half are allied with the Shia Hezbollah group. Pompeo went to Lebanon, and he was very blunt in his support uh, to isolate Hezbollah in Lebanon. Sanctions are going to be coming after Hezbollah. And the meetings he had with the parties were extremely direct. It was the right-wing Christian parties, parties that support Saudi Arabia. What happened was, after, uh, after he left... A few weeks later, the Golan Hyde issue uh, happened. And the way I view it, it was, yes, it was a present to Netanyahu, but at the same time, it was a Trump administration present to Hezbollah and to Bashar al-Assad. What happened is you just legitimized Hezbollah's weapons again. You just gave them the raison d'etre to fight, to say that the weapons are to protect ourselves from Israel, to protect ourselves from the great evil in the Middle East, as they say, and to bring back the Golan Heights. And at the same time, what happened with Bashar al-Assad is he, he has a legitimacy right now saying, this is what I'm doing. It's, it wasn't actually a revolution against me. As you see, these are outside powers who came into the country and they were trying to remove me. So it gives his, his reasoning, it legitimizes it as well. And looking at Lebanon, looking at what's going on with the Trump administration, 
I feel that, yes, the Trump administration is pushing Lebanon, but there's also a line they will not cross, and it's, I think it's because of BP Netanyahu. Because he could take on Hamas, he could have a two-week war with Hamas, he could do, you know, some go over Syria, bomb a few things, but a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon, they had a war in 2006, Hezbollah had 7,000 rockets or something like that, now they have hundreds of thousands of rockets, they have training from Syria, they've been fighting in Syria for years, they have exponentially more power. So I feel it's a situation where both of them need each other as well. There's that fear tactic that, yeah, we're trying to stop you, we're trying to stop you. Netanyahu needs that tactic of Hezbollah. I need to defend everybody from them. Hezbollah needs Netanyahu as well because that's how they keep their support, their base. So it's that game where even though even though it seems that everybody, you know, oh, they want to defeat each other, they hate each other, but at the same time you look at it and if you're looking from the outside, everybody needs each other, and they truly need each other to remain in power. As sick as that might sound, as counterintuitive as that might sound, but Hezbollah needs Netanyahu, Netanyahu needs Hezbollah, Bashar needs Hezbollah and Israel, and it's just kind of a game over there. And then we're, if we're looking at, so, so recently, Omar uh, al-Bashir was toppled uh, in Sudan, and I think that also is going to have reverberating effects throughout the Middle East. What very few people know is that there's a big Sudanese contingency fighting in Yemen for the Saudis and for the Emiratis. They tried to use other fighters for them, like whether it's Pakistanis, they try to use Pakistani soldiers, Sudanese soldiers. So that's going to have a reverberating effect over there as well in the region. And just touching quickly on uh, Saudi Arabia and Mohammed uh, bin Salman, the way I look at the situation over there, Yes, they're very close. They're very closely tied to Trump. Trump is not going to leave Mohammed bin Salman. But it's also MBS is in a very precarious situation. Uh, we were talking earlier. I feel like it's a democracy's sword. He's not safe. He took on all his family, all his relatives. These are billionaires, powerful, some of the most powerful people in Saudi Arabia. And he removed them to consolidate his power, to act like he's more Western, yeah, at the same time, again, what, what I don't know if everybody knows, but he's been torturing women's rights activists, putting in prison. One thing, uh, one one thing that's been happening is he's actually been arresting and torturing American citizens. Yeah, the Trump administration has been saying nothing. They're dual citizens, and I truly feel it also has something to do with ethnicity. And as bad as this sounds, if it was a white American over there, and this is happening to him, it's different than a dual citizen who's Saudi and, uh, and American looks like them and being tortured by them. So the Trump administration does take that view, I feel, and have that perception of the situation over there. But overall, just to uh, make this uh, quick, uh, I feel it's currently there's a sort of balance of power. It's worse than it was before. I don't feel that the Trump administration has any realistic uh, opportunity to create any peace in the Middle East. Uh, whether war could happen, I always feel it's an opportunity that war is going to happen because the slightest situation with Iran, the slightest situation in Syria could just escalate tensions. And it's going to be a proxy war. It doesn't have to be a war between the U.S. and uh, and Iran. It could be a war between Hezbollah and Israel. It could be a war between the Kurds and Hezbollah, Kurds and Turks. So there's so many scenarios that could happen that could just escalate the tension over there. But just to cut the short, uh, 
I have a pessimistic view of what the next few years are going to be in the Middle East. Uh, th thank, thank you for your, uh, your uh, comments. Um, just a reminder, um, we're going to go a little bit longer today. We're going to go to about 1.10. So there will be plenty of time uh, for questions. Um, a, a lot of you have talked about um, um, forces that are, that are belligerent, forces that are um, um, kind of one-dimensional and that they, they want to, it's, it's a lot of it's about land and power and so forth. Um, uh, um, Mahara, you mentioned uh, Jamal Khashoggi and his, his killing. And uh, one of the things that Trump made clear after, in the aftermath of that is that um, these kind of moral issues of, of, um, are, are, are take second, take a back seat to business interests and other things. So if, if you don't mind, I mean, one of the questions we have from the audience is, um, where are the grown-ups in the Middle East? Where, 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 where are the people who will, despite their inclinations to grab land or to um, demonize or, or worse, um, where are the people who will say, um, as Eddie was talking about, let's exist for this because we have to exist together and we can actually carve something out in terms of agreements, in terms of... Um, May I just add a footnote Please. and let my colleagues talk about the main content of your question? question. Um, by way of a footnote, I would say, um, where are the young people? Uh, I come from the Middle East, and I always struggle to get into politics, and I realized that I could lose my head trying to do that in Iran. <laughs> and so I said, hands off, I'll just you know go somewhere else and talk about foreign policy. Um, the... the I, I raise this because uh, we know that a lot of these countries have a significant youth population, and they are becoming increasingly politicized, and all of the leaders in the region are increasingly, if not directly politically accountable to the youth, are under enormous pressure to live up to the expectations that the younger generation wants. Nobody wants war from Israel to Iran. Uh, nobody wants it. In Saudi Arabia... Um, I was just there. Um, there is tremendous support uh, among people 50 and under, especially for the reforms that have come about. People don't discuss foreign policy as much. People don't discuss the leadership as much. But one thing is clear that the face of Riyadh, at least had been going over the years, has really gotten them to change. And I could see it. And it's a lot easier place to live now than it was uh, couple of years back. Um, so that was just the footnote. These leaders go to sleep and wake up knowing that if they don't respond to the demands of the youth, they will all be in trouble. Uh, th thank you, Panashik. Um, Dr. Kaplan, do you want to... Yeah, you mentioned the adults in the room. So there was a sense when the Trump administration came into power that the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense at the time were the adults in the room, and they will keep things... <laughs> Under control, they're no longer there, and we have new people. And I find it kind of fascinating because, at least initially, the sense that Trump would like to limit U.S. intervention around the world. Yet now he appointed these neoconservative, uh, very hawkish uh, gentlemen as uh, national security advisor and secretary of state. So it's hard to get a sense of where the overall Trump foreign policy is heading. But the other thing that I'd like all of us to consider is that we cannot think of the Middle East in isolation. Again, Trump was elected in the United States. Brexit happened in Britain. Uh, developments in India, in Japan, in Eastern Europe, in Italy. It's a, it, th these are things that are happening globally, and they're also impacting uh, the Middle East. 
So we can ask where the grown-ups anywhere in the world uh, at this moment. I mean, just look at what's happening in Great Britain, their inability to do anything within their long and established uh, political uh, system. So I don't know. Maybe the young people will bring about in 20, 30, 40 years the, the new wave of grown-ups. Well, that, that's a good point. And let's remind our audiences that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is now going to be a fifth-term yeah. prime minister. So he's, um, he's an example of somebody who's, I don't want to use the word ossified, <laughs> um, but, but um, is, is extending his, um, his uh, um, you know, pull for, for many, many more years. Uh, Mahar, do you want to check in or should we? Um... Yeah, sure. I mean, I just have a very quick comment about this in that we did have an opportunity in the Middle East a few years ago for uh, things to move on forward, but... Sadly, uh, other people were killed or uh, they were overcome by uh, different events. At the moment in the Middle East, we have some really, really dark uh, leaders and dark powers uh, controlling uh, the events over there with their agendas. And it's, uh, you ask, where are the adults? The, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that's just happened this week which is in Sudan, where people just went into the streets and said, enough is enough. And uh, the fortunate thing, and that's the fortunate thing, is that the army stood with them for once. We don't know what's going to happen next. The same thing happened in Algeria. These people went into the street, and Botafleka eventually had to give up power. Uh, we wait to see what, happen, uh, what happens in, uh, in both countries, but... Uh, there's always a ray of hope. You know, we're all that pessimistic and we're all waiting for doomsday to happen. There's always hope that uh, something along these lines will occur, but it has not happened in Israel because we have uh, now uh, the status quo being maintained over there, even being pushed to, in, a, in a more extreme direction. Uh, we have what's happening in uh, Saudi Arabia with Yemen and uh, with Syria, etc. So, Yes, at the moment uh, there isn't much happening, but let's let's see what materializes in those two countries and see if it follows or they follow what happened in Tunisia. Then maybe there's a ray of hope. Um, speaking of hope or lack of hope, um, uh, one one of the countries that is not represented so far on the panel, um, at least in terms of discussion, is Egypt. Uh, Egypt is another example of a country with wide influence in the region. Um, it's a barometer of how the region is going. And we have um, CC in power, a general who um, you could argue how, how, it would, how it happened and why it happened, but they deposed the democratically elected government of Egypt. Um, and so a lot of people are crying uh, about human rights issues there. Um, and I read, um, I just read the other day about how Trump's um, withdrawal of money to the Palestinian Authority has led to health issues among a lot of women there. A lot of NGOs have lost their money and are losing the ability to kind of care for a lot of people there. That's, that's the human dimension of what we're talking about, I think. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about that human dimension rather than the, the kind of, um, you know, the political um, 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 discussions we're having, which I think is great. But is there a human dimension that I think people need? Is there a human dimension that people are missing here? Um, do you want to, Eddie, do you want to go in? Uh, throughout the Middle East? Yeah. In terms of Trump, especially Trump's policies. Especially uh, Trump's policies. I think the biggest issue would come down to the Palestinians and what's going on with education and healthcare. Lebanon, for example, has uh, Palestinian camps. And 
I want to say one thing, and it's we we hear about how Palestinians are treated in Israel. We hear about how they're treated uh, in other countries, but I want to say this, and just to be fair, Palestinians are treated horribly by Arab countries as well. It's not just with Israel; they're treated extremely horribly by whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's you know Jordan. They're treated better. I'll say I'll take Lebanon, even the Saudis, etc. They. So in Lebanon, they have camps. Uh, if you're a doctor and you're Palestinian, you can't work outside that camp. So, so looking at the human effect, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, whatever you are, but you're Palestinian, you're not allowed to work your trade. There's a certain amount of trades that you could only work with outside the camps. Why does that matter and why is that going back to Trump? Because these camps, a lot of the money is from NGOs. That's how the economy works in there. A lot of this money is from, you know, you're, you're talking... Um, from the UN, from other European NGOs. And when Donald Trump and the administration cut that money, and it was hundreds of millions of dollars, this, this affects a lot of people. This affects the hospitals, the schools over there. And when you're looking at it, you're looking at it as several different aspects. And I feel that's how hatred happens. That's how animosity happens. That's how you turn people into terrorists sometimes. Because when someone wants to live, when someone, even if they're in a bad situation, but at least, you know, I'm working, you know, my children are learning, but then oh, I'm going to make it even worse for you. I'm going to cut it out. The people over there aren't saying that this is a Lebanese government doing it. They're like, oh, look, the United States, what they're doing, this is a continuation of what is happening because of Israel, etc. And it takes a very real human dimension, you know, uh, just putting yourself, I, and maybe I'm very ashamed to say this, I lived in Lebanon, I've never once been to a Palestinian camp, and it is also that, that perception, it's very bad in there, you know, there's army barracks around it, you know, you need to go through checkpoints to go to a Palestinian camp, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's lawless in a way, and it's already, the situation already, over there is already dire, with no more money, it's getting worse and worse, you're hearing more stories about violence. You're hearing more stories about people trying to burn themselves in Lebanon now. It happened a few weeks ago. And this all adds up, you know. People are just, it's just reaching a boiling point. And I think that human effect is actually what's going to make the situation worse. Can I quickly? Yes, yes please. Yeah. There's always a human dimension to conflict. And in this regard, um, the human catastrophe um, can mitigate conflicts in the Middle East. I actually have ways of hope in that regard. Um, and e countries like Egypt, which you refer to, as well as Jordan, to a lesser extent, are balancers in this regard. When the Syrian conflict um, started and there was an overflow of refugees in Jordan, Jordan was one of the first countries that was immensely overburdened. And being an ally of the West and the United States, we immediately understood how catastrophic this can be for Jordan itself. And hence, efforts by the United States to create the uh, you know conflict zones around the Jordanian-Syrian border etc. That is also, by the way, prolonging uh, the longevity of the Bashar al-Assad government. In Egypt, which has far more weight than Jordan, um, uh, it is uh, also uh, a weighty case of a balancer because any Egypt is the primary uh, first well, first response actor when it comes to developments in Gaza. It is not Lebanon or Syria or Iran or anybody. 
besides Israel, it is Egypt. And we know there are tunnels, there are refugee flows, there are issues. So Egypt has been one of the countries, along with Jordan, that has always tried to tell everybody else to kind of cool down a little bit, even to the United States. Uh, and in that regard, even when it comes to dealing with Iran, because they really understand the catastrophic dimensions of, of the human flow of conflict, uh, however you want to say it. But thank you. Yeah. Okay. Th thank, thank you. Um, anyone else want to check in? If not, we have lots of other questions. Can I, can I just uh, interject here? Just, uh, yeah, Maha, we, we, we're having a little trouble hearing you a little bit. Um, let's see. Try, try again. Can you, can you yeah, hear me now? Perfect. That's perfect. Okay. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what uh, Dr. Ganoush and uh, Simonian have added over there. But in terms of the, you were talking about the human cost, the human forget about the politics, forget about the governments, just concentrate on what the people are, you know, feeling like. I mean, I just want to give an example of what's happening. in Take Yemen and take, for example, Libya and take Syria. I mean, you have now a generation. It will be near a generation where uh, people have lost their childhoods, no education. What do you expect will happen if this continues for a bit longer? Uh, we have uh, cholera in Yemen, we have uh, starvation, malnutrition. Uh, Libya is going to have to reach those stages soon if they're not careful. So what will happen is that people will be pushed to the extreme. And unfortunately, not a lot is being done to uh, help with these humanitarian uh, disasters that are taking place. And I fear that this will only generate more and more extremism if it's not addressed very urgently. And uh, as, as you said, uh, the gentleman, Dr. Kaplan said, you know, this will not just affect the region, it will affect the whole world as well. Uh, th thank you, each of you, for, for um, addressing that, that topic. Uh, I, I want to remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program. It's a third annual panel about Donald Trump in the Middle East. And our panelists are uh, Dr. Mahar Kalaji, Dr. Aaron Kaplan, Dr. Banashe Kanush, and Eddie Simonian. Um, Dr. Kaplan, we have a couple questions directed toward you. Okay. Um, um, but it, but er feel free to ch check in, um, everyone. Uh, the, one of the questions is... Um, and I've heard this a lot in my years traveling in the Middle East, and I've been to Iran and elsewhere, and you really hear it there um, and elsewhere. But the questions are about double standards, uh, seeming, seeming double standards. One question is, um, well, other countries have kept lands with the spoils of war. Mm -hmm. Why can't Israel keep the Golan Heights? What is the problem with that? That's one question. Second question is, um, Israelis have to live under the threat of Hezbollah and Iran, who both talk about destroying it and killing Jews. Isn't that a kind of, you know... Um, you know, d double standard in a sense, or 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 not something that should be paramount in people's minds. Can you can you kind of talk about those two, please? Uh, double st standards in international relations has to deal really with your strength, uh, wealth, and ability to exert power around the world. Uh, so when a big and strong country annexes land, there's very little that the international community can do uh, to counter that. Uh, Israel right now is being fully supported by some of the leading powers in the world, and I think this gives Netanyahu a sense that he can go ahead and annex land or extend Israeli sovereignty over new territories. When Obama was in power, he felt less confident in, in taking these type of um, 
steps because the United States felt that Israel should not do those things because of certain regard to international relations, norms, UN Security Council resolutions, and so on and so forth. So we also have to enter realpolitik into the question of uh, double standard. Uh, with regard to threats, yes, of course the, the threats are real. They're not imaginary. I mean, rockets are flying in the Middle East. People are being uh, killed. But uh, rhetoric is heard on many sides of, uh, of the equation. And while Netanyahu himself might be sometimes restrained in his rhetoric, not always, but many members of his immediate party or his coalition use rhetoric that is as reprehensible as the one that you hear uh, from the other side. So there's uh, plenty in the Middle East uh, to choose uh, and, and, and pick from. But the ultimate question is, does Israel face an existential threat? And I think that the 70 years of history that Israel has suggests that perhaps not, that it may be faced an existential threat in June of 1948, but it was able to overcome that. And Israelis had a sense of an existential threat in the lead up to the 1967 Six Days War, but it proved to be a false sense of existential threat because we know what the outcome of that war uh, ended up being. Uh, so Israel is a very strong country with a nuclear arsenal, and I don't think that any other uh, countries in the region will enter a war that will be an all-out war with Israel. And I think that the Israeli leadership is well aware of that. And, and that's my sense is that the Netanyahu doctrine is to control and limit the conflict. Kind of have a valve that he controls. How far you want to push it and how much do you want to let in. But not much beyond that. Um, anyone else want to check in? If not, I have a flurry of other questions I can ask. Um, one of the things I want to ask is... Um, Donald Trump is the face of this administration. He's obviously the biggest face, but it's not just Donald Trump. You, um, several of you have mentioned Bolton, who was uh, part of the previous, I want to call it regime, excuse me, but previous presidency of, um, of Bush, uh, George W. Bush. Um, and, uh, you know, we used to call them neocons. Uh, they, they've had a you know, huge impact on this administration. Um, but but it's it's um, it's a kind of network of people who have certain views, conservative views uh, on on the Middle East. And I was shocked to read um, a couple months ago, uh, Jared Kushner, for example, has had an influence on the Middle East, where he was suggesting that Jordan um, 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 essentially change its policies toward the Palestinians who live there. Um, and it was it was the sort of nonsensical suggestion that made you think. You know, again, we only refer to the other question: Were the grown-ups in the room? Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, if you see anything from this administration that's actually going to kind of turn in, in the next couple of years. Let's not go beyond that. Where you know you might even be surprised that yeah, actually, because they've had two years of experience in the Middle East, they realize this is a reality. So we're going to change it a little bit. We're going to we're going to change something and, and be realistic. If I may say, that has already happened in Syria. 
Mm-hmm. Um, President Trump met with President Putin. There were agreements as of two years ago about what to do about Syria. And, um, you know, the, the, both the United States and its allies have kind of abandoned the idea of fully that Bashar al-Assad is, must go immediately for the Syrian conflict to be resolved. Many of them have reopened their embassies um, in Syria. Uh, are being encouraged to invest in Syria. So there's a degree of pragmatism that whether it is within the administration or forced on the administration's understanding of the Middle East that does take place. And I think that that may continue as a ray of hope. Thank you for pointing that out. I didn't realize that they were reopening embassies in Syria. Um, Anyone else want to um, check in on that? And if not... Um, Again, I, yeah, please. I find it confusing because I think that Trump's instinct is towards isolationism and limit U.S. involvement in the world. Yet the most two recent appointments seem to indicate the exact opposite. So it's really to get hard to get a handle of where this is heading as an overall administration policy. If I may add just something here, I mean, just one statement. I think this administration has no moral uh, compass at all. I mean, it's just, it, it really is the, the depressing what you just said earlier about uh, that juvenile delinquent, uh, Kushner, trying to uh, change policies. He's not an elected uh, uh, official or anything like this, just happens to be the son-in-law of the president. The way he's trying to dictate or trying to change things in place is, is just unfathomable. As a moderator, I have no comment, but I will. <laughs> I will move move on to the to the next uh, thought. Um, we've had we've had I've, I've been associated with Commonwealth Club on and off for more than a decade or so. And one of the people I interviewed um, and and was on a, not a panel with, but I was on stage with, was Aaron uh, David Miller, who's a longtime um, diplomat in the Middle East, has worked for both um, Republican and Democratic administrations. He wrote a piece, uh, co-wrote a piece that came out a couple months ago. Um, about Donald Trump, and he and it wasn't a completely pessimistic piece, um, but he said, um, "I'm trying to quote this. See if I can read my writing here. The foreign policy establishment is rightly terrified of the way Trump ha- uh, is uh, makes decisions. So you, you know, you've referenced this before about his impulsiveness, um, and one gets the feeling that there's not a lot of um, headspace, shall we say, intellect, you know, academic rigor." What, what, whatever word you want to use behind his decisions. Um, but, but, but again, and we've seen different secretaries of state. We've seen different people in a circle who've had to leave. Um, let, let's presume he has a, you know, uh, at least two years left. Eddie, you're, you're, you, you're dying to check in on this. You know, I want to say that when I think about the problem with Donald Trump right now, nobody's checking him and he's just looking at short-term gains. And that's, I think, the biggest, biggest thing that when you look at it, we don't know what the effects are going to be long-term and how damaging. And he doesn't care. He frankly doesn't care what the long-term damages are. He's just looking to make quick gains. It's like real estate for him. Like you build something, you sell it quickly, done. You make the money, everybody thinks you're awesome. You don't care if the building's going to fall after a few years. And that's, that's his policy. That's how things are uh, right now with him, in, uh, with whether it's foreign policy, and especially foreign policy. And, and he just wants to outshine Obama in any way he can or destroy his legacy in any way he can. And as childish as that seems, it's a big part of it. Uh, But to me, the main, main point is to him, it's all about short term 
wins, short-term wins, short-term wins, long-term problems he doesn't care about. It's the next next uh, uh, administration's problems. Um, I, I, I wouldn't call them smiles, but I'm just getting reactions from, from people in the audience. Um, but anyway, do any of our fellow panel, panelists want to uh, check in? Yeah, can I just say something here also? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sure everybody's read the article which was uh, which appeared in New York Times by uh, Thomas Friedman just uh, day before yesterday. We saw it here a few hours before you saw it. And uh, he referred to, uh, to Netanyahu as a very, very smart person. And indeed, he is very smart. And he was comparing uh, Netanyahu with, uh, with Donald Trump. And he said that, uh, you know, he doesn't think Donald Trump has touched the book. For, uh, I mean, I personally think the last time he touched the book is when he swore on the Bible to become president. I don't think he's actually read a book or seen a book since then. So, you know, the, the comparison between between the two couldn't be, uh, more, more, you know, huge, huge difference between the two. A very smart, very smart leader who's very calculating and another one who's just uh, goes with on everything by instinct. Um. Well, we, we, I want to say we have about um, probably five minutes left or so, um, and just time for a couple more questions. Um, you know, the, one of the questions we have is, uh, uh, is, was the question about Yemen. And I'm, I'm glad, Eddie, I believe it was, you mentioned the, the Sudanese um, um, troops that are in there. Uh, the New York Times broke this story, I think, about a year ago, maybe, about how there were several... Um, uh, military, uh, um, not leaders necessarily, but let's call them leaders from Darfur who had experience in Darfur. In other words, they had a history of overseeing genocide exactly. and overseeing violence that the world didn't care about. And it seems to me that Yemen is another example. And people, you know, the economists called it the, the world's mo worst war, I think a year or two ago, the, the most forgotten war. Um, it seems like it's, it, it mirrors what's happening around the world, but it's really more than a mirror. It's it's, it's far worse, it seems to me. You know, and, and this is honestly one thing I will say, this is a problem with our media. And nobody talks about this because it was a thing a few months ago, a thing a year ago, a year ago probably. And nobody understands the true costs of the people over there, the starvation, you know, the millions of people starving, uh, the devastation that Saudi Arabia is causing over there. And the Saudis, one thing they do, and it's a historical thing, they typically fight wars with other country soldiers, especially Sunni soldiers. So because they view themselves as the Sunni leaders and they get soldiers, mainly Pakistan, uh, Sudan, the situation with Sudan, Sudan actually was, uh, Omar al-Bashir was also a smart uh, uh, political uh, uh, president. And w what he did beforehand, he, he had some ties to Iran and then he wanted to get close to the Saudis and to the Sunnis. So he was like, hey, you know, I'm a Sunni country and you could use my soldiers over there. And that's exactly what they did. And it's just a brutal situation, which I think people should read more about, should see the pictures, should see the suffering. And it's all, at the end of the day, I think we're visual human beings. We have to see what's happening. And the media doesn't really talk about it, so we forget about it. So it's as if, but it's. I think it's a bigger tragedy than Sir, what's going on in Syria right now. It, it's just horrible, and I, I don't know if Meher has numbers, but it, it's just brutal. I mean, the numbers are uh, shocking. I mean, I don't have the most recent ones, but as I said earlier, you know, we thought we got rid of cholera. We we thought we got rid of the. You know, Yemen used to be rich, an agricultural country. 
uh, now we have malnutrition over there. So uh, when once you reach uh, uh, you know dimensions like this, it's just unfathomable what uh, how this can continue or how we can still as a as a country support it. How can we can say how can we support what's going on in there? Just you just have to look at the images. They're they're you know they're heartbreak, gut wrenching. That's what it is. Yeah, it is. It's uh, totally heart heartbreaking and gut wrenching. Um, you know, you you talk about um, not to not to be cynical, Lamahor, but you talk about Trump not having read a book probably um, in a, in a long time. But I'm wondering if he, if and this is just as what you're talking about, Eddie. I wonder if he even looks um, at the horrific um, images. He gets dossiers, I'm sure, about what's happening in Yemen, and in and in that sense. If people look and don't care, what does that say about the world? Uh, I think we talk about Trump in the Middle East. I think we can talk about the Trump era. I think maybe his greatest contribution, and I'm putting greatest in quotation marks, is that he's taken pretense out of politics. It's all brute, id kind of politics. So you remove all the commitment to certain universal values, to certain patterns of speech, to certain etiquette, those don't matter any longer. So we can question Obama's ability as a diplomat. And he messed things up in the Middle East and responsible for many mistakes. But at least he was committed to a certain vision of the U.S. and its role in the world. With Trump, we don't have that anymore. We're down to a most base kind of again, instincts, impulses as a way to pursue whatever benefits the base, the next project, the next election, the next outcome. Everything has a bottom line, everything has a price, and that's the way it's being calculated. And in this type of political reality, the human toll is just, it's just numbers that you add to the spreadsheet. There's nothing behind it. So in a way, we live in this world, in the Middle East and elsewhere. I don't know whether the end on that note. Um, I, I think I, I think I will actually. Um, but let let me um, remind our audiences and online that this is not the end of the discussion. You can always read, and we encourage you to read as much as you can to get divergent views about the Middle East, divergent views about Donald Trump. Um, I do want to remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program. The third it was the third annual panel on Donald Trump in the Middle East. Uh, we'd like to thank our uh, panelists. Um, uh, Mahar Kalaji, Aaron Kaplan, Banafshe Kanush, and Eddie Simonian. Um, I'm Jonathan Curiel, your moderator, and um, now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 113 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>